All right, everybody. So today we have back on the podcast, Kasim Hansen. How you doing, man? I am well. How are you? Hope you had a good Christmas. Yeah, very full, a lot of food, very ready to be back to my normal <laughs> routine at this point. So uh, we had you on, I guess it was a couple weeks ago, and I, I want to take a little bit of time to address something because I thought it was very interesting. So I guess, and, and I might actually make a whole separate video on this, but um, just because I had, you know, when Doug came on, Doug Bergnoli came on maybe two months ago now, and this whole biomechanics discussion has been talked more and more, you and, and Doug and some other people. And I, the way that I got introduced to Doug was actually a few commenters. And I've talked to other two other podcasters who said something similar that it was like in the comments and some of the comments seemed kind of spammy, like you got to get this guy on and this, some of them seem more legit. Um, and I don't know. I mean, there's no way for me to know if it was like how, you know, who the comments are coming from, really. So I had Doug on and totally a cordial conversation, enjoyable. He sent me his book, um, which, you know, I, I kind of glanced through. But the thing is, and some people say like, oh, you got to read the book. Same thing with when I had John Jaquish on, you got to go through the whole book. It's like, guys, I, I run a podcast and I have somebody on for an hour. I'm not going to necessarily. Now, I know you did cast him. You read his whole book because you had a, a, a not necessarily a debate against him, but you had arguments against his work. Um, but I'm not going to necessarily read an entire book before talking to somebody for an hour. Uh, so in any case, and also my feelings on that are, if it is a debate format, you should be able to provide your stance on something and not just reference some, Hey, we'll go check out a 300 page textbook. It's like, well, no, tell me, tell me the argument, explain your points. Um, so I was a little surprised when I think if you actually watch the podcast itself, I had a little bit of pushback to some stuff that Doug said, but not too much. And then I had Kasim on and Kasim kind of gave his points. Uh, but I was very interested in, and it wasn't a ton of comments, but some of the comments saying, oh, it seems like I really pushed on uh, on Doug, but then I'll have somebody like a Mark Lobliner or a Mike Dolce on, and, and I, I let them get away with all this stuff. And, and my points are always like, look, I'm, I'm a podcast host. I'm not here to debate people. Just because I have somebody on the show doesn't mean that I agree at all with everything that they're saying. You know, I would say almost every guest I've had, I could probably pick something out that I disagree with, you know, I mean, even Abel and I are, are pretty close and we've done tons of podcasts together. We don't agree on everything. Right. So just because I have somebody on doesn't mean I agree with everything they say. Um, and, and so then I was surprised because, and, and this is something that I, I told Doug, we, we had a call the other day and I told him, I'll put this out there. I'll let everybody know. And, and we'll just, you know, put it out there. So um, I reached out to him. I said, you know, I saw what you said about podcast hosts and, and some stuff with, I, I think maybe specifically me, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I said, you know, I don't really love how you went about it. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised, you know, I said, you know, you have, you've mentioned this interest in psychology and sociology, and it's interesting to me that this is your way of going about it. And I said, you know, we can talk publicly, we can talk privately. Uh, and he basically said, he has no interest in that. It's not helpful to him. So he doesn't want to do it. So I said, okay. <laughs> and, and then I, I woke up to a very long detailed email on, uh, why I'm wrong, why Kasim, you know, can't be trusted, things like that. So I said, look, man, I'm not going to spend all this time writing you an email. If you want to talk again, I'm more than happy to talk. We could do a podcast for live. So we exchanged numbers and we spoke for about an hour. And I have to say like the vibe that I get from Doug is not uh, in any way. And I said this as well. It's not like a charlatan. I don't think he is trying to scam people like I, I see some other people in the industry because a lot of his email was not like you know f you or anything like that it was like this is why i'm right this like it was still going back to his uh methodology and and i think doug is is genuinely passionate about what he is uh proclaiming and and believes that he's right and i'm not saying he's right or wrong um so so i just told him i was like look like you're you're clearly into it i can totally appreciate that and this is where i take a moment to step back. And I said, look, like my background, because he, he wanted, I don't know if you saw it, Kasim, but one of his things is like, oh, you know, you're just nodding your head along because you don't, you know, you're, you don't have the knowledge base and everything. And I said, I don't really talk about my background too much, but I did study exercise science. That was my undergrad. And uh, I was top of my class. I graduated top in the, in the entire major, um, went to dental school, did very well. I've always been a good student, but that means almost nothing in this discussion because I don't have this strong biomechanics background. And if, if you have two people who are basically discussing something that you don't fully understand, 
I, I can't, when Cassim comes on today, I can't say, well, these would be all of Doug's points. And when Doug comes on, I can't say these are all Cassim points. It, it's, you know, because there's a point where I kind of have to tap out and say, I, I don't fully know this. <laughs> I haven't studied this exact topic for as long as you guys have. And uh, final thing I'll, I'll give as an example is within the world of dentistry, you know, you have uh, TMJ issues, right? Uh, temporal mandibular disorder. And there are full camps of people. So there's something called Las Vegas Institute. And then there's Dawson and Panky down in Florida. And these people have seminars, CE courses, like entire camps that are saying like, this is the cause, this is what you should do. And this is the cause. And this is what you should do. I mean, these are doctors with also like PhDs discussing this stuff and they're complete disagreement. (laughs) And so there are certain topics where it's like, I can't tell you which one's right. And so that this is where I would kind of bow out a little bit with the biomechanics stuff where um, I'm not going to say that, that I absolutely know this stuff. So, uh, when I have somebody on it's, Hey, express your points. I'm very interested, but I, I can't certain areas I can vet and say, Oh, that's bullshit. And that's not, this is not one of them. So that was very long and, and rambling, but I just wanted to put that out there because I was seeing a lot of the discussion on this and saying, I let things slide or I'm, I'm just too, too critical of this thing. Um, but that's, that's kind of my stance on it. Yeah. get a similar vibe in terms of the comment section that there just seems to be a select group of people that have a a very strong opinion on certain things. Um, Some of those comments coming like maybe like five or 10 minutes after I posted a, you know, a a longer video where Mm -hmm. it's like, clearly like Like you've just been waiting to respond to a video. Um, But I mean, I don't think that's unique to, to Doug by any means, but this is just happens to be also the first time I've experienced that type of Mm. like behavior in the comment section, et cetera. So, but I'm just not going to give any opinions on Doug or the response or whatnot. Cause that was never the, uh, that was never the goal anyway. Right. It was, the goal was to objectively kind of cover their, you know, the, the differences in terms of, you know, the models that I was looking at, not like, Hey, you know, like um, Doug's bad. Therefore his math is, I disagree with or whatever. It's like, no, I disagree with this because of the merits of the argument. Right. And something I said to Doug is like, because, you know, I appreciate that we could take the time to talk on the phone. And as I told him, it's very rare that I, you know, email and text it, it's, you don't get the tonality. I said, it's very rare. I actually talk live with somebody and we're just like cursing each other off. You know, I, I mean, yeah. in talking with Doug, it was, it was nice to talk to him. And I said, we, we can do something. We talked about, he said he would be down for a round table with Mike Israel. So I said, you know, maybe I, I can uh, make that happen. Um, so again, I, I hope the commenters are not thinking it's like a, a personal thing. It's just, you know, there's a, there's a level as a host that I'm going to go. And then I try to, um, but I, 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 I usually people do comment that I do push back a little bit. I know there are people who just don't say anything. Um, and there's even like later in the podcast, I'll probably be asking you, um, Kasim, about some of your views that maybe I agree or disagree with. So uh, I, I think when we left off last time, we were going into like specific exercises. So we were talking about how yours maybe did compare with some of what, what Doug um, was talking about. Um, and then since then, I have spoken with um, Abel Moore. I know he had a consult with you and I spoke with uh, Brian Borstein. I know you guys have done some stuff together. So I don't know if there was any specific jumping off points that you felt we didn't address last time, or you want to get into to new topics here? Um, I mean, we can do like a really quick recap if you want. I mean, but essentially it'll come down to an exercise by exercise basis in terms of how things vary. And that's because, I mean, we started this conversation and, you know, and my post was a little bit about the, the math and the models, not quite being accurate right and so to steel man's doug's case which in this in all of the rebuttal videos is like he says the math is accurate for what he's trying trying to illustrate and my response is well that's subjective if the goal is is that to say like if you're squatting the more you're the more angle you have at the shin the more load there's the knee in a squat it's accurate enough for that but it is not accurate enough to compare across exercises because that's where then well if you're accurate in one way in one exercise and the opposite in another exercise then you create this distorted picture about the comparison um, between those two exercises but that that aside i think the thing that the, the thing that we probably disagree on the most that is relevant is just you know actually comes down to the biomechanics things and so that would be on an, an exercise by exercise basis right and from what i you know i've watched a little bit of the video like doug is speaking to people that think that doing the shoulder press 
is a middle delta exercise um, or that doing a plank is a quad exercise, right? And he's trying, he's explaining why that's not true. And we're kind of in the field of like, we're looking at, well, how do we, is it possible for us to bias the different heads of the triceps and using mm -hmm. technology to do that? So I think clearly we're speaking to two very different audiences and we're speaking at two different levels of, of criteria in, ter in terms of that mechanic stuff and what we're trying to present in the content that we offer. Um, but there, from a principal perspective, some things like it'll be like some things will be agree, but then application will be disagree because of that divergence of context, if you will. Sure. Um, there was one thing I was going to actually ask about on your Instagram, and this will tie into other things as well. But I wasn't totally familiar with the machine you were using. It was uh, you were showing about how failure looks different at different points. Right. And you had that mm -hmm. you're doing a curl. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen that machine before, but you were elaborating how, I, I guess, based on, uh, I don't know if it was like a difference in moment arm, how different exercises could ever, could you elaborate on that? And maybe I'll put in like a clip of that video. Yeah. So we have the, um, so the prime equipment has three places to put weight on the plate loader equipment. And basically each one of those weight horns moves the weight a different degree and is in a different portion of the arc. So basically you can change the resistance profile of the machine depending on which one of those pegs you load it. So one of them will overload the bottom of the curl, one will load the middle of the curl, and one will load the, the top of the curl. And so what we're showing is, is that depending on the resistance profile you choose, you hit failure in a different way. So for instance, if the exercise is most challenging in the short position, after you get the last rep that you can get fully shortened, you'll still have a lot of muscular capacity to do, you know, maybe 80% of a rep and then 70% of a rep and like, and then so on. Basically you can do these, all of these partials, you know, working to towards muscular failure. So the difference between the technical failure of when you can do the last full rep and when you've really exhausted the muscle, that motion, there's a big gap. Now on the opposite side, when something is very challenging in the lengthened position, uh, basically once you get your last rep, the next rep basically just sticks you at the bottom. Like you can basically, maybe you can get like one quarter of a rep, you know, depending on the exercise and how favorable your internal mechanics are, but you don't have the ability to dig deeper into muscular failure because the technical failure stops you from being able to perform the lift anymore because you can no longer get out of that bottom position. And then the mid range is somewhere in between. Right. And then there's a, there's a factor of this too that has to go beyond the mechanics and has to do with what we call hemodynamics, which is basically the pressure regulation, your ability to push blood and oxygen into the muscle. Mm -hmm. So when a muscle is loaded in this stretch, it has kind of more of a, we'll say like an internal BFR, right? Like a muscle being loaded in the stretch position, yeah. there's just more pressure on it. So it's harder to reoxygenate that tissue in between those reps versus when a muscle is more mostly focused on being contracted at its highest intensity in the short position. And then it kind of gets to let off a little bit in the length of position. We see that we're able to push a little bit more blood and oxygen in there between the reps. So basically the amount of energy we're able to expend in one exercise is different than the other, because one has a greater occlusion property than the other, which also compounds on the fact that it also makes you fail at the bottom. Right. So, but you also end up fatiguing faster in that scenario. So what we're just trying to illustrate with that is, is that you can't just say like, well, okay, training to two RIR is the same across all exercises or training to failure is the same across all exercises, because the difference between an exercise is technical failure. And like your true muscular failure is going to vary quite a bit between exercises. And then that was just one example, right? And more common examples, you look at some, you look at complexity of an exercise where it's like, okay, how many people are going to take a barbell squat to complete failure versus how many people are going to take a bicep, you know, curl to mm -hmm. complete failure, right? Especially when we're talking about muscular failure, right? The more complex the exercise is, the more you're going to stop when the technique starts to waver and the less you're going to go to complete muscular failure. And there's a whole bunch of factors that go in. So yeah. So the post is just to get people thinking that like, Hey, you know, it's probably more important that I compare my effort in this exercise to my previous experts in this exercise. And I don't compare my effort in this exercise to my effort in another exercise when I'm looking at managing my progression and how I'm responding, you know, because one thing going to failure, maybe, a, maybe a muscular equivalent to, you know, four IRIR and a different exercise from what we're, we're talking like a true muscular stimulus standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's, when I was reading, I was like, I love this because it was a better 
way of explaining something that I've thought, but not heard many people discuss. And, and I recently did discuss it with another uh, guest, Jeffrey Verity Schofield. And basically what I said is, you know, when you look at certain exercises and the examples I gave were uh, like traps and calves, I've, I've always felt like if I were to stop when I can no longer get 100% of the range of motion, I feel like there's still so much left because like for a calf, like for me to get like full extension there, it just feels like I'm like, I'm just not doing enough, you know, because I could still do so much weight and not get that last like inch or so of range of motion. Uh, and I'll finish a set of, let's say 12. And it's like, but I could do like 20 partials and, and I'm not saying one is like right or wrong, but it just feels very different. Now you like traps too. I was like, you know, people, I'll see people take like four or five and they'll do these shrugs, but it's like, I guarantee you, you're, you're not going all the way up, but that might be fine. Um, now, would you say, you know, you're discussing how failure is different. Would you say that in those exercises where to get the full range of motion is hard because it's hardest in the, um, in the fully contracted position, is that something where you more often recommend to do partials in those situations or you're just stating that failure is different? Yeah. So we'll definitely use more of those. It's some sort of extended set method in those exercises because the technical failure stops further away from what you, what you would relate to muscular failure within that rep range. Right. So if we're trying to get to the relative same physiological stimulus in those exercises, then a lot of times tacking on those partials tends to be beneficial. And what you'll notice is a lot of times it's like the, those partials don't dip into your fatigue like they would if you were to try and do them on another exercise that mm -hmm. doesn't fit that kind of category. On those exercises where you're already getting really close to muscular failure, you start adding extended set methods and all of a sudden your fatigue like starts to really climb, right? So mm -hmm. like, for instance, like if you're doing... If if you start if you do a bunch of partials at the bottom of a set of split squats, like you're gonna you're gonna feel that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if you do a bunch of partials at the bottom of a calf raise, it doesn't necessarily. I mean, because it's such a small range of motion and you fatigue in that top so early, you might be like, okay, I'm not noticeably like that much more sore, that much more fatigued, right? I'm kind of maybe I'm more on par than I with my other muscle groups that I typically train than than normal, rather than I feel like you know. I did nothing unless you're on team, no calves. And then you do like any calf exercise and then you can't walk for a week, but right. well, I am involuntarily on uh, team, no calves. You know, I've been trying to get into the calf group and they won't let me after 17 years. So I'm stuck out here. <laughs> so, uh, you had done some research. I know with, uh, Chris Barricat, right. I don't I mean, I don't know if it was published data, but I know you discussed the difference with the, the gas truck, right. And the different like foot placements. So we, we reviewed that study. Um, okay. It was a, a colleagues of Chris uh, had done the research and then we just did a, we just did a, view, a video reviewing mm, um, okay. the study. And I basically, I kind of gave a little bit of the mechanical information that kind of helps support the why we're seeing what we are in the data. Right. Okay. So, so, cause I was wondering in terms of other, I, I guess like slight movement. So for instance, um, my right foot goes out significantly more than my left, right? So if I just were to stand naturally, I'd be like, kind of like that. Um, and this has always kind of tripped me up a little bit with squatting because I'm like, well, if I make both feet the same like this, it feels very uncomfortable actually to, to do that. So I just kind of let it go out. But inherently then my legs do not then look the same. And I just feel like I have some of these asymmetries. Um, it, have you come across maybe like clients of yours who have had something like that? And then if so, has that then resulted in asymmetries in muscular development? Um, like, like would the one have more adductor involved to the squat than the other one all the time because of that different placement? Yeah. So, I mean, those type of asymmetries are pretty common and depending on how long they've had it, sometimes there is a severe asymmetry in the hypertrophy, um, that they, that they've had. Right. So I mean, for example, Adam, our coach, um, you know, he had a thing where one of his hips was out a little bit more, right. He's a power lifter. So he's doing all of those movements. And then we, we were laughing one time, looking at this picture at the bottom of the squat. Cause one glute, just like it, like hung like an extra, like his pelvis was square, but he had so much glute hypertrophy and he's sitting here trying to, you know, keep his hip shift. I'm like, dude, 
you're not going to stop shifting to that side because you've got an inch more glute on that. Side. It's the stronger side. Your body's going to use it. So you're going to have to balance that out with unilateral and submaximal loads until, until you have the same, same butt cheeks on both sides to use in the squat. Right. Otherwise you're always going to use a little bit more of the one that's strong. Um, now the thing with those is working out whether that's a structural issue in which case, like that's not something that you're going to be to change, be able to change. You just have to figure out what's the best way um, for this person to develop their strength and their physique in a way that you know is healthy for their joints. But if it's uh, if it's a soft tissue issue, meaning that okay, we got some muscles that aren't being properly you know contracted and relaxed or whatever. There's some you know which just really comes down to a neurological issue of like okay, they just whatever it was a past injury that they just developed this pattern or whatnot. Like you see it all the time. People sprain their ankle, they go on a cast, and then they don't have the cast, and they still walk funny or whatever. You kind of have to retrain the coordination of those things. So if it's neurological and, and soft tissue, then you can do things to try and bring that person back to symptoms. Symmetry. If it's structural, you have to accept this is that person's limits in terms of symmetry. Right. How does that change our exercise selection, the way that we set up the techniques that we use and anything that we would do to rebalance the symmetry of strength and aesthetics as much as possible for them? So, I mean, like in your case, right, let's just assume that it was structural and there was mm -hmm. nothing that we could do about it, right? If we actually took the approach of like saying, well, no, you have to squat the same way and your leg press and all that stuff, your feet have to be symmetrical. We could actually do you harm, you know, from an orthopedic standpoint right. over, over the long term by trying to make it look better to us because we want it to be symmetrical rather than it being reality symmetrical to, you know, the structure underneath. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've wondered then. And obviously, I mean, it would probably take a consult or something to get into like all of the details of it. But I, I do notice even, um, so I, I did an experiment where I actually only trained, well, no, I, I did extra volume for my left leg. Um, I added like three or four sets just to see if, if, you know, extra volume would actually help much. And it did make about a half an inch difference, which to me just tells me I was probably not doing enough volume, obviously from, from my lower body in general. Okay. Uh, but what's that? I said, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but what I found was even when it was measuring like in the middle, about half an inch bigger on the left side from a frontal view, my right still looked bigger, um, especially towards like the teardrop region. And now that I'm just training them both, you know, evenly, um, it, it is interesting to see the asymmetries. And I, I noticed that with right and left too, um, that's probably more of like an insertion difference, but like my, my right arm at 16 and a half inches, um, will look like way bigger in certain poses than my left arm at 16 inches, like much more than you would think a half an inch would do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and I just find that topic in general, very interesting, like, like symmetry versus like how even insertion on the same person, right. versus left side, obviously between individuals, I mean, you see massive differences, right? I mean, you see people with the same measurements and it's like, how, how is that even the same, even close to the same circumference? Yeah. And I honestly think that the people that have had to put their muscle mass on with work have a harder time maintaining the symmetry than the people that, you know, that gain muscle very easily or putting it on, uh, we'll say chemically, right. Mm -hmm. because the chemical, the chemicals uh, spread more, more symmetrical um, than your training right. in your day-to-day -day activities. But what you'll usually find is like, if, if, if you take somebody and you pulled their skeleton out and looked at it, you would find these subtle asymmetries when you're looking at an individual joint. But what you'll find is, is that the majority of the asymmetries cancel each other out, which is why we as humans tend to have relatively the same function, right? We all, we all run forward and backwards. There isn't somebody whose hips or knees go the other direction or, or whatever. Right? <laughs> so you might have like, well, somebody's got a slightly different, you know, angle to their pelvis. And then somebody else has a little bit of a different angle to the neck of their femur. And then somebody else has a little bit different relationship between their tibia and their femur. And like, you go through and you look at all these other joints, you'd be like, oh, look at this is different. This is different. But then when you calculate up the net of all those differences, it still ends up being a leg that can do all of the leg stuff that we, we need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and cause that's essentially what we are. It's like, we're the product of just like, you know, thousands or millions of years of, you know, structural evolution. And we may be essentially all we'll say, you know, genetic mutts and that like, okay, like this, this, this tibia came from, you know, from these genes and these, this femur came from these genes, you know, 
from, you know, however many years back, but we've, what is put together is still something that can be utilized. So when you're looking at aesthetics, um, if it's muscle belly differences, sometimes you can, you, you can spoof the change, but if it's really different, especially those of the, like, like that come from injuries and stuff like that, um, you just kind of have to accept like what's there. Right. So, like yeah. I dislocated my elbow in wrestling and ripped mm-hmm. the part of the bicep off of the bone. Um, and that is my left elbow, but my left elbow now looks better than my right because the tendon sits a little bit further away from the forearm. So then mm-hmm. it gives a little bit, so there's a little bit more separation. So it's like, right. well, it's smaller, but it looks bigger because, right. <laughs> the, <laughs> because it sits back a little bit, a little bit further, right, um, right. you know, and like, those are the type of things that we can't change, but can you make things, you have the ability to make every piece of your body bigger or smaller, as long as you're willing to put enough effort and enough time in. And I think that's the big thing that people don't realize. Cause when we're like, Oh yeah, you can bias this muscle and people are like, well, I did that for like six weeks and it didn't happen. I'm like, how much hypertrophy do you normally get? Right. And now we're talking like, if you do this exercise, we're shifting the scale of that, like a few percentage points in that direction. So you're right. doing, you're so you're getting a percentage of a percentage point difference. So you're not going to like in 12 weeks, you're not going to completely change the way that you look unless you're going from right. detrained to trained. Um, but you know, I would say like, you know, if you wanted to, as the, as a physique athlete or just somebody that just really cares about, you know, doing this, like if you put in two solid years of focused effort, you could probably have a pretty visible difference in pretty much any aspect of your body that you'd want, want to go through. Right. But it's that consistency and effort over a significant amount of time, which is much more than most people want to accept. Yeah. Well, and again, that's what makes part of this so hard. And one of the things that I was saying to Doug as well, where I don't know if there's, you know, it's, it's not like we're looking at like, just like standard, like math or, or chemistry where it's like, yep, we, we have basically like the answer here. It seems like a lot of this is still experimental and, you know, as, as confident as you are in your stance, somebody like Doug seems to be confident in his stance. And not to say that neither one is more right or wrong, but just that from somebody on the outside, like myself, or certainly somebody who who really has no background in it, it's very hard because some of these things, I can't just prove that this is better. You know, some people say, well, look at this EMG data. Some people say, well, look at how you feel it. Some people say, well, how you feel doesn't really matter. Um, And then the length of time it can take to actually see differences is, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really dramatic unless somebody's like a complete beginner, in which case, the fact that they're going to grow with everything that they might, you know, it might be a wash in the results because they both just, you know, two experimental people, like they're both uh, growing so fast anyway, in the early stages. So, uh, you know, you almost have to have this confidence, like, well, I believe this is going to work and therefore I'm going to do this differently for the next year. Um, And that I think is very tough. And then even I, I know, and you've even said, well, don't, listen to me because of my background or something, but, you know, make sure it makes sense. And the only problem I have with something like that is that we have a lot of things that have face validity, right? I I mean, and if you don't have a strong background, I could sit here and say, okay, guys, look, this just makes sense. If you eat eight times a day, you're going to, you know, that furnace is going to be going so much more than if you're eating three times a day. And just think about how much you have to digest that. And you're going to have protein in the middle of the night. It just makes sense. And it kind of does make sense if you say it in a certain way, but now we have the studies to show it actually probably doesn't matter that much. You don't need to eat eight times a day. So um, just to kind of sympathize with the general population that is, it's very hard to parse this stuff out. So this is where I would say, let's first just ask a couple of questions that can kind of maybe say like, should we just, can, can we just agree that this is, this is possible, right? Like, so we know people develop asymmetries in training like it just it just happens right now not always usually not on purpose right but we know people are somehow able to go and they do a specific activity or whatnot and then they actually that you know they change their morphology a little bit right like they start looking you know different or whatnot um you know we see this happen in injuries we see this happen in you know people that do a particular sport or whatever you know like they'll they'll develop like oh well like you know, they repeatedly use this thing. And then all of a sudden that thing gets a certain amount of hypertrophy. So the, I I don't think we can deny that like, well, it's clearly possible because we see these things happen. 
you know, but it's often that we don't notice them until we look at somebody who's had a chronic issue for like years and years and years. And then we're like, okay, this is clearly obvious that they're in the state and we have a mechanism that got them there, but it's not necessarily the mechanism that we would use from a gym setting. It's usually like, you know, it's some sort of repetitive act, work activity, sport right. activity, yep. uh, injury, et cetera, something like that. That's just like caused them. But it's like, okay, so it's possible there. Right. So now the disagreement that, or the doubts that people could have is like, you know, do, or have we uncovered the methods to do it? And I think that's where it's like, you can, you, you could, that's where it's like, if you don't have the data or whatnot, or you don't, you're not confident in what that data means that you can obviously be critical of how possible that is or how big of a difference this stuff makes or whatnot. But I think, I don't think, I don't think we're at a point where we can say, Hey, you can't, you know, like, You'll, you'll see it like all the time, um, you know, in, in physique people or whatnot, it's just like they peel back from show to show to show and then be like, oh, well, that, that, that thing over there changed, right? Um, you know, because, you know, they've done different exercises or something like that. But, it, you know, it takes them a whole one or two, you know, off seasons before mm-hmm. they come back and be like, that looks different. Right. Um, and then you have to qualify how much of that is just different conditioning, you know, different, you know, they just put on more muscle mass and so that's just now the look of that or whatever. And how much of it is like an actual shift in that tissue and stuff like that. So we are in an area where most of our data is acute um, because I mean, who's going to volunteer for the study to train only their short head of biceps for the next two years. Right. Uh, right. I mean, so that's, so there's a, there's a big practical limit in that. And that's why I have invested as much as I could into Coming, trying to come up with the best protocols using acute data as possible so that like, hey, then if anybody ever does want to do that two-year study, we at least have some tangible data to be like, okay, maybe this is the, these are the exercises that you should try when you investigate that study because there's at least some evidence um, behind those, right? So, yeah. uh, so who knows? Maybe you, we're, well, go ahead. Would you say that, because, and, and again, it was when I was talking with Abel and Brian about, so we'll, we'll probably do like a, part two round team with them as well. Um, do you feel that like, let's say exercise a is like your standard, like barbell curl and Mm -hmm. exercise B you've got something that you've looked at that is okay. Okay. This is like the best biomechanically to to hit the biceps and nothing else. Is it a matter of, well, you could get as much stimulus as you need with the barbell curl, but eventually you're going to get so strong in advance that the amount of stimulus you need going, I guess you could bring this into the whole stimulus fatigue ratio that RP and everything talks about that you need more stimulus, but if you're using a standard barbell curl, there's going to come with that more fatigue and injury risk and all of that. And so this other exercise, it's not that it actually is providing a more, a greater total stimulus, but it can provide that stimulus without some of these other issues. Or is it that you actually feel like you're getting more stimulus than you could even possibly achieve with say a barbell curl. And, and this might be very, you know, uh, dependent on which muscle group we're looking at, but I, let's just use the curl. Um, so in the beginning, it's going to be more about specificity than magnitude because people just don't have, they just don't need that much stimulus. Right. And so, yes, as you, as you, as you progress, you need, you need uh, more stimulus, which means you need to put in more effort and more volume. Now, one of the things that to look at is, is what comes along with an exercise in addition to the stimulus, right? So if you look at a barbell curl, like maybe that's not as nice on your wrist and your elbows and your shoulders. So is that the area to put in more loading, more effort and, and more volume for some people or would other exercises simply be better? Yeah. Those considerations in terms of the specificity, um, you know, if you do a barbell curl right now, do you know which one of those elbow flexors is going to be the limiter of that exercise? Like which one of those things is going to fail first, right? Especially if I'm training it, you know, we'll say like an, an eight rep load, right? When one of those muscles is done, right? If it stops prematurely, the other two are not going to go to the same degree of fatigue, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So when we use specific movements, we can be more specific in the outcomes or the expected outcomes, meaning that I know if I train, if I do this version of the curl, I know which one of those elbow flexors is going to be the limiter. So I know for sure I'm taking that one to its highest potential of stimulus. And I know if I do this other one that I'm taking the 
opposite one for its highest potential stimulus. If I do what we call like an omni exercise, which is like, this just trains all of the elbow flexors at once. I don't know if there's any sort of difference in strength or stimulus between those elbow flexors. So I don't know that, you know, maybe my brachialis is going to not get fully stimulated because my biceps are going to fatigue to a level that causes me to cease the exercise. Um, but it could have done more. Right. So I have no idea what's going on in that muscle or in those different divisions of the muscle to know, does the bicep curl stimulate them all evenly? Does it stimulate some more than another? And it will take, you know, a lot of time to use. And then that's where it's like, you will, whatever development people get, right. So just the natural ratio in which their stuff grows will be based off of which one of those things happen to be getting a slightly like couple percentage points more of stimulus in that exercise as they do it for years and years and years and years. So in terms of absolute hypertrophy, you could argue that for a lot of people, they're not necessarily going to be making a huge meaningful difference by saying, well, I'm going to target this tissue with this exercise. I'm going to target this tissue with this exercise versus I'm just going to do an exercise that kind of works, you know, everything all at once. And so at a beginner, you could argue that, well, that maybe not make much of a difference. And then those instances, I would say you focus more on the things that come along with that exercise. And then as you start to get more advanced and you start to put in more effort, more volume, then you want to be more predictable in what your results are going to be. And also you can be smarter with your volume, knowing that like, well, instead of doing, all right, so let's say I'm going to do three times a week instead of doing barbell curl three times a week or doing this, like the relative same curl with either different equipment or different, you know, just different shoulder flexion angles or something like that. Why wouldn't I be like, Hey, why don't I make sure one day that I make sure for sure that I get this tissue, the maximum stimulus. And another day I get this other tissue, the maximum stimulus. And this other day, you know, maybe I do the exercises to all of them, or maybe I focus on the brachialis or whatever it may be. Um, but you could start varying your training up based off of your split to be like, okay, I'm kind of making more complimentary extra choice exercise choices. And this is the caveat, right? Is the worst case scenario. Let's say that you just think that none of this is possible, right? If you do elbow flexion, it works all of the elbow flexors. Then worst case scenario, you're actually still doing the same thing. So the worst case scenario would be, it's like, well, I'm still training all of my, I'm still draining all of my biceps here and all of my biceps here and all of my, like, it's like, so the worst case of the argument is, is like, well, congratulations, you have novelty in your, in your, in your training, but right. you're still training all of the elbow flexors. That's the worst case scenario. Best case scenario is, is that you're able to direct that stimulus more towards what you want and start to become a little bit more precise in how you use your volume, make your efforts more complementary, and potentially change the aesthetics over time, you know, but I mean, let's say that you're going to add five pounds of muscle in a year, right. To your frame. Right. And it's like, okay, by doing this exercise, we're able to shift like the gains will say 30% in favor of this, this thing that you wanted to wanted to get right mm -hmm. like over a year that's a very small amount of muscle and we're talking like five pounds for your whole body for like you know a natural athlete if they gain five to ten pounds in a year that's that's pretty good progress right oh, yeah, from a hypertrophy standpoint that's really that's really good progress so if you figure like well what percentage of that is elbow flexors right like you know six ounces right. or <laughs> whatever it may be so it's like okay so i'm getting uh, so instead of getting, you know, three ounces of short butt head bicep and three ounces of lateral head bicep, it's like, well, okay, I got four and two. Mm -hmm. Right. But that, I mean, it, it takes a long time of doing that, you know, to be able to be like, oh, wow. Like now my biceps are, are massive, massively different. So the scale there is important, but I think the other aspects that people don't look at with this is that these positions that we're looking at because they line up the tissue so well, they tend to be very good orthopedically, right? They tend to actually prevent the need from doing any sort of mobility or, you know, flexibility work or whatever, because you're literally going towards like the end ranges and you're actively training these things. So it's like, it removes the need to have to stretch and do all these things. So there's a lot of benefits that come with going in these positions from a neurological and orthopedic perspective that get overlooked when you're just like, like, but is it more hypertrophy? And that's where we have the intangible things of like, well, how about if we just compare the barbell curl to doing these specific like cable motions, 
what's that going to do for my joint health over time? What's that going to do for just my, the, like the novelty and training effect over time. Right. I mean, cause we, like we know that the research shows that novelty and training seems to produce better results. Right. But what that doesn't give is the mechanism of like, well, if you, if you're just doing different exercises, you know, but too much novelty on the other hand will also go the other direction. Right. So there seems right. to be a certain amount that is beneficial. And I would, I would argue my hypothesis is like, well, it just depends on if that novelty is actually, you know, moving exercises in a way where now we're actually, you know, challenging that tissue either through a different portion of its range of motion or it's different re resistance profile, or we're positioning in a way where that tissue can, is a little bit more of the limiter than this other thing. And we're kind of going back and forth between these things. So it's like, I think we're starting to undercover maybe some of the nuances that make that novelty good. And then if we can have a more of an educated approach to our novelty, even if it's just a better educated guess, that that's a better system than just saying, well, okay, I did elbow flex. I did standing barbell curls this phase. So next phase, I'm going to do easy bar curls. And the next phase, I'm going to do dumbbell curls or the machine. Like, yeah. she's like, well, but why, what, why not have a logical reason for the exercises that you choose and the exercises that you periodize to as well. Um, and the other thing is, is that if you have an expected outcome of an exercise, it's easier to evaluate whether or not that exercise is effective. Right. So there was something I, I wanted to ask, cause you, you touched on, you know, you're looking at which muscle group there is like the limiter, right. And it's going to fatigue first. And there was a thought process I had uh, the other day that is almost certainly incorrect, but I'd almost like to elaborate on why. And I think maybe the answer is in the difference between failure versus sufficiently fatigued. So if you were to imagine, I don't know, like something being held up, um, by like poles or, or whatever. And if, if like, there's like the strongest pole there and that one breaks and then immediately just because all three were needed to hold them up, obviously the next two are then just going to break. Right. So you had this first thing that, that kind of tapped out. Now, the reason I say this is almost obviously wrong is because if you do just as like a classic example, maybe a wide grip bench has more chest emphasis and maybe a close grip bench has, has more triceps or at least that's how it's, it's typically talked about. Um, you're already showing that even though both are used in, in both of these exercises, there is a difference in the emphasis, right? And you could use the same example with like foot positioning and squat or whatever. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, so inherently once that main muscle, let's say again, a wide grip bench, once that chest taps out, right? It can't go anymore. Wouldn't the tricep almost by definition also be failing because the tricep is working and is unable to use enough force to push it. But maybe it's failure in the same way that if I loaded 600 pounds on the bench press right now and somebody let it go, I would fail. But like the muscle wasn't sufficiently fatigued, even though I did fail the rep. Would that be a way to look at it? Like, yes, in that wide grip, the tricep is still hitting failure, but the chest failed first and was sufficiently fatigued versus the tricep was not fatigued there. Would that be an accurate way to look at it? Or would you say actually the tricep just did not hit failure still? So I would say, you know, in, in that example, it's likely that the triceps didn't hit failure. So like, if you wanted to experiment with this yourself in the gym, right. Is you'd be like, okay, take two exercises that, you know, isolate those muscles. Well, right. Like you could say, okay, I gotta, you know, maybe I'm going to do a chest fly and a tricep extension. Right. And like, okay, these are, these are my baseline exercises. You can see like, okay, what does a hard set of, you know, five or 10 or whatever rep range you want to use. Then you go do that other exercise that you're talking about to failure. And then you jump right into the exercise that you're trying to figure out. Does this muscle really go to failure and see how diminished its output is. If you immediately go into that second one. Right. This is, this is like, kind of like the, the home experiment. So if, if I, if I did a bench press and then I like, you know, my chest was fatigued and then I'm tricep pushing it to try and lock out or whatever, but then I can run over and I can do like, we'll say like, you know, 80% of what I normally could have done on a fresh set of tricep extensions. I obviously wasn't at a great degree of muscular fatigue there. Right. But muscular if I fatigue, do that, but or must, yeah. Well, I, right. And again, maybe I'm just using the terms differently, but because I would agree that, that the triceps were not fatigued that much, but again, mm -hmm. by definition, would they not have also failed in the same way that like I could take 
of, you know, let's say a tricep extension and I could fail, let's say a two rep max, but then I could take what I could normally do for 12 reps. And because a two rep max is just not very fatiguing, even though I failed, I'd probably get similar reps. You could even argue, you know, the whole like activation of it, you, you might even get more reps. So it's important that we don't conflate different variables here because so like when we say muscular failure, right. Or we say like when you reach, when you reach failure in an exercise, right. You Mm -hmm. have to define like, that means I can no longer complete that exercise in, in some manner. Right. Right. So one, like to use your pole example, let's say that like in the bench press, right. As soon as the pecs stop being able to contribute. There's only like the triceps are only so efficient that they're just doing the elbow extension, right? Mm-hmm. So there's only so much elbow extension recruitment that can help if I've lost the ability to, you know, flex and adduct the shoulder at this point in time, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to be able to pack less press the, you know, press a, you know, a, whatever a standard grip bench up in the air, right? They will be contributing to the lift, but they won't be able to do it on their, on, on their own. So when we're comparing exercises and we're like, okay, what technical failure means like we're no longer able to perform it this way. And that's likely usually because the primary mover of those is no longer able to participate enough that the synergists, no matter how much they help cannot make it go, but the synergists aren't going to necessarily go all the way to the fatigue because they haven't been working as hard during any of the reps. Right. So it's not, right. so if you pick a good press exercise, it's a lot of pecs, the pecs might be working all out. And the triceps are helping just as much as needed as the pecs fatigue, the triceps start helping a little bit more, mm-hmm. but because they were never all in and they were coming on late. Right. So the, it's like, you may not be able to do the elbow extension anymore, but the mechanism that you're not able to do the elbow extension in that press anymore is because you're not able to do enough of the shoulder flexion ad- adduction portion to finish the lift, but you could sit there and you could like isometrically push the bar apart or whatever. Cause you still have plenty of, we'll say capacity of work left in the triceps. Now, in terms of rep ranges, we look at muscular failure, like specific to rep range, meaning that like, okay, there's a degree of muscular failure. You can take a 20 rep max and a 10 rep max and a two rep max. And that's because that failure point is determined by, you know, if it's your two rep max muscular failure is when the muscle can no longer produce enough tension to move that load right? Let's say it's, you know, it's a hundred pounds, right? Okay. But if we do a 10 rep max, you know, a 10 rep load or whatever, let's say that's, you know, 65 pounds or something like that. Then it'd be like, all right, muscular failure is now when the triceps can no longer produce enough tension to move 65 pounds. Right. And then your 20 rep max might be, it's, it's when your triceps can no longer produce enough tension to move, you know, 45 pounds or whatever. I'm just throwing those numbers out there. But Mm -hmm. so when we look at muscular failure, that is rep range specific, right? when we're looking at technical failure, that is exercise specific, but don't like, don't, don't cross those two things over. So you would use, like, if you were going to use a rep range isolation exercise as a comparison model, right. You would be just using that as like, Hey, this is just a standard of like at this weight, I can typically do this many reps in this kind of isolated, you know, exercise. And that can be my metric so that I can just test to see how far away you know, or how much decreased performance I have in that after performing another exercise immediately prior, if you will. So I, I don't yeah. know if I, that was more confusing it, or more helpful. No, it, so we're totally on the same page conceptually of like what's happening there. Um, again, I, I think I'm just maybe using fatigue, like I'm hearing people use fatigue and failure almost synonymously. And I guess in my head, I'm just thinking like from a literal definition, once the or at least how it is in my head, once the chest is, you know, completely fatigued, well, like you said, the the triceps just, there's not going to be enough there for them to finish that press. So again, from a literal standpoint, the triceps are failing to be able to press that by themselves. So they've, they've failed is how I would say it, but they are not sufficiently fatigued. And yeah, so that's how I would say it. Yeah. So, um, fatigue can lead to failure, but failure doesn't always mean fatigue. Right. Yeah. Is that yeah. a good way to put it? That, that's how I would say it. Yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. 
Um, let's see, I had something written down here. Oh, this is actually a question on, on Doug's behalf because he, he mentioned it several times to me. So he was saying, you know, his, his exercise was, I guess he calls it the pull in. And he was saying, you know, it's not even supposed to be all the way out. It's kind of almost like a 45, I can't really show here, but he was like, you know, kind of like a 45 yep. degree. And he said, and Kasim saying that the best one is like, he said, it's basically the exact same movement, but just out in front. And then how could mine be the worst possible <laughs> exercise? And his is the best um so maybe you can elaborate on that first off doug if you watch this uh it's not my i'm not i don't have a best lat exercise right like we have like 500 exercises in our library we have exercises that have attributes that can be used towards goals or whatever and so i think it's funny that because i've been critical of the poland that now he's comparing it just to an exercise of mine that he's happened to see on social media mm-hmm. as if like because there, there is no Kasim pull down, right? There is no like, hey, this is this is my favorite lat exercise, and that's the one that you do. It's like, no, we have exercises that challenge different parts of the lat or the delts or the teres or whatever, and they do it at different lengths and range of motion, resistance profiles, whatever. So it's like, I don't have a, I don't have any exercises in the game. But to respond to the the, the direct question of the pull in is so if like if i like the reason i say that like okay if i was to design a lat exercise so this is basically an exercise that we would be good enough that we'd say like all right that's you know we're, we're targeting some of the lats here is, is that if doug's position is out here and i believe it's it looks like in most examples that it's close to the scapular plane so that might be 30 degrees if he wants to call it 45 degrees whatever i mean and this is one of those issues is that like i've looked at videos in the book and whatever and there's all these little differences or whatever mm-hmm. so like doug likes to nitpick like well i didn't say it over here and i'm like but you in this video that's how it was said or like so i can't can't be responsible for citing every little thing but anyway so if we say it somewhere in that rough scapular plane, right. Is I would say like, okay, that's like the minimum viable place that we could go. And then every degree that you start to come forward would start making that exercise better. So if it's like on the spectrum of saying like that, if if, I don't want to walk too far away, but on the spectrum of having your arm in front of your body or across your body or whatever it may be. Right. If we move to the very, like basically as far into abduction as we can get. Right. And then we do a pull in motion. We're essentially at the spectrum of like, we're as far away from being optimal from lats as we can be without like completely leaving the category of exercise mm. all together. Right. So, because, I mean, if you just, if we really just take, let's just take range of motion, for example, right. If you just have your arm out to the side, if you start bringing it forward, every degree that you start bringing your arm in is adding length to the lat right until you like you're getting all the way across your body here so if we're looking at just as if range of, if more range of motion happens to be good right at this position here like basically any any amount that you come forward is incrementally making that exercise more in terms of range of motion right and then in terms of mechanics this is where like okay when you like if you look at all the fibers and they're going up at the side and they're just pulling this way once they have the rib cage basically what it does is it allows all of those fibers to kind of pull in a more synergistic direction. Right. And it also allows them. And this is, I had this conversation um, in part with that huge lat debacle with Mike Rutel and Lyle McDonald and Paul Carter and whatnot that just turned into another, that was like, it was like a perfect end to that week between the Doug rebuttal and then those, those guys like, yeah, like they just, I don't know. Like there was a comment about lats and then like, Five minutes later, people are just throwing shit at each other. I'm like, I haven't okay. had um, <laughs> yeah. Lyle on yet, but I've had him on a lot in the past. And um, I've been told that he wants to come on <laughs> to discuss this as well. Yeah. So I'm sure it'll add to the fun. Yeah. Lyle actually did a, a rebuttal, like uh, apologizing to us, which was awesome. Uh, really? Like I totally didn't expect that from anybody in the industry, but I mean, you know, kudos to Lyle. Well, Lyle um, people, that, especially. Yeah. <laughs> So, but essentially using the rib cage because it stretches the lats without having to go overhead allows us to get to a good muscle length in terms of like that stretch. Um, and we're in a place where the lats still have good leverage in terms of shoulder extension. Right. So that's where it's just like, okay, if we're, if we're pulling out here, if the arm is out and we go up, the more we go up, the less leverage the lats have to pull the arm back down. Like their, their leverage in terms of the extension of the humerus gets less and less and less as we get way up high. 
So when we stretch across, we don't need to go up as high, but we can get the same mechanical stretch. It's like, all right, now we can get that stretch mediated hypertrophy response. We can get the increased range of motion. The lats become more biased mechanically. Um, I think in, I didn't see all, all the two hour video or whatever. I like watched a couple snippets, but I think Doug's, one of Doug's arguments is that if the arm comes across the body, then it has to be um, posterior delts that are doing the work. And it's actually the, the opposite of that, right? I mean, the delts are, external rotators and they they bring the humerus like in towards the scapula um so the this motion here this like out and in actually lines up extremely well with the posterior deltoids especially the ones that are on the inside of the scapula because if you imagine if my arms externally rotated they would be pulling like basically straight like this to mm -hmm. be able to pull that humerus like directly into, you know, adduction behind the body, right? And then my teres, which comes in here, that would be the one that does it in internal rotation of bringing that right in there. So we actually teach a motion for teres that is like an internally rotated version of Doug's pull-in, where basically you're coming out here and you're you're pulling like basically like bicep to scapula, if you will. And then we have a posterior. Uh, deltoid version, which is like here, but you're now you're pulling basically in an externally rotated position here. And so we find those tend to be a lot less lats and more of those respective tissues when we look at both the EMG and we look at the, the, the modeling and range of motion. But as we start to bring the arm across, the deltoids and the teres do not gain any leverage. In fact, their leverage gets worse as the arm comes around, but the lats get better. And that's where we really start to see that exchange in activity because the lats are benefiting from going around the rib cage, but your scapula, because like they can't really come around. It's all of those scapular muscles are losing that leverage as they're, as you're starting to come around. Hmm. So, I mean, in terms of comparisons of the exercise, you could be like, well, if you just look at like how much flexion that Doug uses in his exercise versus me. I mean, if, if we call this, this, this outside motion flexion, this is where the semantics get confusing, right? Cause it's like, is this flexion this way or is this qualifies flexion? Right, or when does right, it become right. whatever this, this, this position here, right? If you're watching, if you're not watching my arm is like, basically like my elbows, like close to my ear and it's, you know, on the scapular plane. Um, if we say that like, okay, well, it's a similar amount of this, Right. But it's not even remotely close to the same range of motion because we're covering all of this range. And I, I mean, I don't even know which exercises he's doing. I'm assuming he's talking about the pull around because that just happens to be something that's gained popularity on Instagram. But we do pull downs. We do rows from various angle. We do pull arounds for every divisions of the lats. We do pull downs for the iliac lats, for the lumbar lats. We do low to high rows for the, you know, the thoracic lats or whatever. So this is why it's like, I don't have an exercise that's like, oh, this is my exercise versus Doug's exercise. Mm. It's like all of these exercises serve a utility because even so in both cases, right? Like in, in Doug's exercise here, like it doesn't challenge the length of position very much at all because one, it doesn't lengthen it. And two, it's not very not very challenging there. And you're going to use a lot more elbows and scapular muscles to initiate that motion. So like the only merit it has is kind of like that down at the bottom position is where we would actually probably see that like, okay, people are going to feel and, you know, and we're, we're utilizing some lats once the arm comes into the body. And in some instances, he's internally rotating it and some he's externally rotating it. So I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote Doug's current version of the exercise but it, I, it's different in the book than it is in their online video and whatnot so i can't say like well which one of those do you mm -hmm. want me to evaluate because then he'll be like he'll just show the other one but like look he's trying to deceive you and i'm like no i'm just trying to understand um right. but if we you know it's because it's not challenging there, you would still need a supplemental exercise. And then if you take an exercise like the pull around where you're getting a ton of stretch, right? You won't be able to get necessarily fully shortened all the time because if a cable's coming across your body, it becomes very hard to pull that like somewhat behind you, right? So it's still not a perfect exercise. You would still want, well, I want one exercise that I maybe is more of like a regular style pull down where I can pull like down towards the hip and in another exercise where I'm kind of more pulling across. But if you do these exercises, you'll find that, you know, it's, it's so hard to get a full range of motion in a single exercise. Same thing for pecs, like doing a dumbbell press is a great way to train the pecs in a lengthened position, but you can't bring the dumbbell all the way across your body. 
doing a cable or a fly X or like a pec deck exercise or something where you can really AD duck the arm across the body. Like that's great, but it sucks for being able to load the back end. Right. And this is one of the problem with reducing to like, Hey, you only need this exercise or these, whatever exercise. Cause it's like, all right, we have so much range of motion that often isn't explored. Right. Um, and you have multiple divisions of these muscles. So to say like, Hey, you only need this one exercise or these two exercises, three exercises, one, it eliminates the whole idea of like picking whatever the exercises that's best for your goal. But it's also, it's like, there's no way that I could say, Hey, if you just do this one exercise, it's going to work great for all of your lats forever. And it's the only, only one that you need. Right. I mean, you, you could go at that from range of motion. You could go at it from a resistance profile. You could go at it from, you know, the bias of, you know, which tissues are working. Cause that's the thing is with the pull in, it comes back to like, well, what is going to be the limiter of that exercise? Right. Am I sufficiently going to be able to, you know, take the lats to muscular failure in that exercise and which divisions of them versus are my teres and my posterior delt going to pre premature the fatigue of that? Right. So in that instance, I'd be like, well, there's much more likelihood that I'm going to not go to as great of muscular failure in the lats in the pulling exercises because of how much more bias the posterior delt and the teres are in that motion. Whereas when I'm utilizing motions that are more sagittal or they're coming around the rib cage, because we see the muscular bias switch much more heavily to the lats in terms of recruitment perspective, that makes me confident that in these exercises, the lat is definitely going to be the limiter and largely so like that something else isn't going to cripple their ability to take that exercise to muscular failure. So essentially the technical failure of the exercise will closely match the muscular failure of the target tissue. And that's what you want out of a good biased exercise. A bad biased exercise would be something else causes the technical failure of the lift. And you haven't quite gone to the level of muscular failure that you want in that target tissue. Right. Gotcha. So I'd say the majority of what we've talked about, and I've seen you talk about recently is this general topic of exercise selection, biomechanics and whatnot. Um, obviously, you know, it's very within your wheelhouse. There was one thing I wanted to ask because I had, I think it was just, I searched your name and it was one of the videos that came up um, and it was with you and, and Ben Pekulski like four years ago and maybe even five years ago. And it was talking about, it's a totally different topic. It was talking about um, functional medicine. And, and I wanted to ask you, were you at one point or still like a functional medicine practitioner? And is that something that you still follow or have you kind of moved away from that? Yeah. So I, I did, I did the uh, functional medicine medicine practitioner, the FMP course mm -hmm. way back in the day. Um, and I did my CCN and, you know, like I was deep into that, that niche and I took a bunch of continued education courses and stuff. Um, and that's probably what took me to my journey ever to around, like, you know, I will say probably around like 2012, 13 ish. I was like heavily into that. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, it's like, I haven't like dismissed or forgot everything, but I've kind of like taken what's valuable and then dismissed what isn't valuable because yeah. I, I think like every niche in this industry, it's like, there are, there, there's, there's a mixture of things that are valuable and also things that are, you know, kind of trash or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, you can say that about the evidence-based community or whatnot, but yeah. Um, yeah, that definitely. And just fall out there. Right. I mean, if you see me on, on camera with, uh, with, uh, with Mr. BPAC, Ben Pakulski, just assume that like, that was the dumbest stage of my life and don't take anything I say too seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean that, see, that would be my example where it's like, I don't agree with everybody with everything that people on here have, because for me, there's a lot of nonsense in functional medicine. And, and also, like you said, mm -hmm. not to throw it all out, you know, there, I do think there are some valuable things, um, but there's plenty that I would disagree with and, and I can just leave yeah. it at that. But <laughs> yeah, same here. What I do like in, you know, for anybody that's like young and like looking at, I encourage people to branch out and learn, like dabble in a little bit of things so that at least, at least, you know, like where people are coming from. Um, but I would say as a, as a trainer, there are a few people that use some of those principles in a way that has good application for like a trainer on the floor of like, Hey, here's, here's some assessments. Here's some questions. Here's some things that might fit in your wheelhouse and some potential like avenues that you could explore that might help a client. 
The problem is, is then trainer thinks he becomes a doctor and is like mm-hmm. diagnosing like a user or whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. What you found out was they had a certain sleep disturbance pattern. And then you chose to give them some fruit before bed. And all of a sudden they slept better, right? You didn't crack the human genome or whatever. Right. And it works sometimes <laughs> and it doesn't some other times. All it's like, there's some, I, I do believe like the saving grace of some of those things is, is there are some practical tools where you can kind of do, let's say like, you know, triage as a client and, or as a, as a trainer to help a client, right. Without necessarily knowing like, Hey, I, we're going to try a couple different things. This is maybe giving me a slightly more educated gaze on like what may, what are three things that we could try to work on your digestion or your sleep or whatever. But I think people just take it to take it way too far in terms of like what, what the mechanisms actually mm-hmm. are. Yeah, right. Yeah, and be like, Oh, sure. look at the, look at the pathway or whatever. Like, yeah. so like I don't run like blood panels and stuff like I used to, like, you know, I went through that phase where it's like, Oh, people are getting a ton of tests, you know, we're yeah, running their yeah. organic acids and all that other stuff. Uh, and now it's like, no, 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 no. We keep it super, super simple. It's like, Hey, are, is there some low opportunity cost things that we can ask this person that might give us a little bit of an idea of how we should approach their training and nutrition protocol a little bit more logically? Awesome. And a lot of times those things come down to, you know, are there simple tweaks that we can make that just make a, make it easier for a person to achieve, you know, sure. the calorie deficit or, or whatever it may be. Right. So, but, uh, yeah, but Gary Tubbs is not, uh, <laughs> not, a, not, not, not an, I don't want to say he's not an intelligent guy, but you know, like sugar is like not killing everybody by itself. Yeah. So Tubbs has some very interesting views, which is interesting because he, he is, um, he is, I guess a close contact, or I think they've done work together with, um, Peter Atia, who I, I do have quite a bit of respect for Peter Atia. And I think he's got a good podcast. He's, he's got a, a lot of good information out there. So I was surprised to hear that he was so, um, you know, in the works with Taubes. And I don't know if that's still the case, but I, I know they at least had before. But yeah, Taubes has some very interesting views on things where I, I have a hard time understanding how he gets to some of the conclusions when you actually look at all, all of the evidence in that area. You see, that's an interesting thing, though, right? Is you can have respect for people you disagree with. Take note of that, people. That's an important, <laughs> important concept. So, uh, Kasim, thank you for taking the time again for, uh, you know, taking the, I guess now almost three hours that, that we've talked between the two different podcasts. It's, it's a really interesting topic that's come up more in, I mean, like we've said before, this isn't a new topic, but I am seeing it talked about more with uh, you, Lyle, Mike, Doug, and a few other people. Um, and, and frankly, I think one of the things that Abel, myself, and, and Brian Borsina talked about is that at this point, when you're 10, 15, 20 years in the game, there's just not a lot of knobs to turn anymore. And so um, even if it's not making a huge difference, it, one, there's the the fun aspect of novelty of trying things out. And two, like, hey, if you can dedicate a year or two to trying some of these things and you can see a small difference, it, it makes it a little bit more fun at the very least. Um, and, and so I think it's a, it's a cool topic that we're kind of getting into. Yeah. Like I said, I think, you know, if you're in the camp that doesn't believe that you can bias any muscles, then, then basically all of these exercises should work exactly the same. So the worst case scenario (laughs) is, is that maybe, maybe you have more fun in training, you know, or maybe, you know, you just have simply more options when you go to the gym in terms of, Hey, you know, this equipment's taken, I can use this or or whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, on the offside that we're not completely talking about our ass though, it's like, Hey, you know, if you enjoy the problem solving aspect and you enjoy having predictable outcomes, then you might be able to have a lot more control over the output of your training over time. As long as you just accept that the magnitude is not, you know, it's not going to move faster than the rate of regular hypertrophy. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I think, and I think that's what people want. They want a magical exercise that gives them 10 times the rate of gains and in a very specific tissue or area or whatnot. And I'm like, yeah, um, synthol. That's uh, right. That's, 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 <laughs> right. A, that's all I got. Sorry, guys. There uh, you go. Cool. You know. <laughs> well, thanks again, man. All right. Have a good one.